Welcome to the Connection Chat Podcast, where we talk about all things mental health. We believe that connecting with others through honest conversation is our greatest tool in breaking down the stigma that is often associated with mental illness. My name is Lauren Sepulvador, and today we're going to be having one of those conversations. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week of Connections Chat. This week, I've got Catherine here with me. Hi, Catherine. Hello. <laughs> Excited to be here. Yes. So happy to have you. So Catherine um, is a new... To Connections, I'm going to read her introduction so everybody can get to know her. So Catherine Richardson is a licensed professional counselor in Texas. In her clinical career that spans over a decade, Catherine has participated in and led teams in various capacities, including clinical quality management, performance and compliance, risk management and crisis intervention, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. In her work as a therapist, she specializes in childhood trauma and play therapy, particularly enjoying her work with parents of traumatized children. Outside of work, her passions include history, skiing, trying every cuisine known to man, and globetrotting with her husband and two sons. (laughs) Yes, that's me. Well, welcome, Catherine. So glad to have you. Glad to be here. So whenever we talked about doing this episode, Catherine reached out about talking her about her specialty, which is with childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So we can get started with that. What inspired you to become a counselor and to specifically work with children? Well, I should preface that with, I didn't know there was a such thing as a counselor growing up. You know where I came from. You just kind of dealt with your problems. And when I went to college, I originally thought I'd be a lawyer. I thought I'd be a family lawyer. So I kind of got into that. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's a job of people who just deal with the families that are going through stuff. And so I thought, oh, I wanted to work with families and kids and help them through really tough times. Mm -hmm. So that's what inspired me to do it because originally I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, then a teacher, then eventually landed on counseling. That's so exciting. And then with your specialty of childhood trauma, that is something that a lot of people shy away from. That's Mm -hmm. not something that people usually think, oh, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I want to work with. So how did that come to be? You know, it's just something that kept popping up. So it wasn't that I was specifically seeking it out. That just happened to be with the clients that I was seeing were dealing with. And then so I started educating myself, getting trained, getting certified in different things like trust-based relational interventions and filial therapy so that I could be a help to the clients that I had. Um, so I, I like it because it, it tends to be something that's universal that so many people deal with, but few find freedom from in adulthood. And you mentioned filial therapy. What Mm -hmm. is that? So filial therapy is teaching parents play therapy skills so that they can be change agents for their children. And the reason I landed in uh, filial therapy specifically is I was doing play therapy, working my butt off, feeling like, oh, we're making so much progress. These kids are changing. Well, then they go home and revert back. And in a few Mm. weeks, they would be back in my office after not having that week to week check in with me. And so I realized after talking to parents, oh, wait, they've got their own stuff going on. And maybe these parents aren't as aware of how to work with their kids and use the right kind of language and help their kids have that feelings vocabulary. So I saw if I'm going to make a change with these kids, I've got to help their parents because that's who's going to be around for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And making that connection so that there's long-term change and that you're not helping them. And then they go back to that family system and in a few weeks need more help again. You're able to help their parents as well. Yes. So for listeners that aren't familiar with play therapy, can you go into details about what all of that entails? Sure. So the technical answer is it's a developmentally appropriate treatment for children. Really, it's based on the fact that children 
learn, feel, they pretty much do everything through play because that's the part of their brain that's most developed in childhood, that emotional part of their brain. And so in counseling, we can't really expect a seven-year-old to come into our office and just spout out everything that's going on, but we can't expect them to play it out. So um, there have been many, many pioneers, but one of the biggest ones was Gary Landreth, who really did pioneer that field of using person-centered play-based therapy. So we're not going in with any kind of prescriptive, you need to tell me about this, but really just through opening the door and providing a safe space for kids, trusting that they will talk about or play through whatever it is that they need to talk about or that's significant to them. Okay. So it's really getting on the child's level and knowing that, okay, they can't process their trauma sitting here. I'm going to ask you these questions about everything that happened and getting on their level and being able to communicate through play. Mm -hmm. So what are some different techniques and ways that therapists work with children in play therapy? So just like any other uh, type of counseling, their theoretical orientation. So you have Adlerian play therapy, you have CBT focused play therapy, you have even play therapies like op play that are specific to children with autism and other um, type of neuropsychosocial um, issues. Uh But some of the basic things are just being with. So a lot of those Rogerian concepts that we as therapists know about, like listening, unconditional positive regard. So as a play therapist, when I come in the room, I'm letting the child know that they can play with all the things in here and a lot of the ways that they like. So there's that little bit of limit setting in there because I didn't say you can do whatever you want, Uh but I do want them to know that there's freedom. So even in that, I'm teaching and also being with. So play therapy is this constant push and pull of I'm doing a little bit of teaching of those social skills, of what it means to be in a relationship with someone, Mm -hmm. but I'm also giving that freedom for that child that they maybe don't have anywhere else in their life. Mm -hmm. And creating that safe space for them to Mm -hmm. where they can communicate what they need and what they've been going through. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're working with families and doing that filial therapy, are there any misconceptions that parents have? Oh, yeah. (laughs) One of the biggest ones is that we let kids do whatever they want to in the playroom. And that's something I have to talk through with parents. And the reality is, is that a lot of us just come from very authoritarian backgrounds. We're like, adults say, kids do. And that's not really what produce or always what produces all whole adult who's able to be assertive and stand up for themselves Mm -hmm. because so much in childhood adults expect compliance and then in adulthood we want assertiveness but that child hasn't learned that growing up so that's a huge misconception and I'll ask the parents I'm like do you want to make a 30 year old's decisions do you want your 30 year old coming to you asking where should I live what should I do where should I work no you want them to make those decisions Well, kids don't learn how to make decisions overnight. They learn that incrementally. So as they grow up, you give them little choices. So little choices for little people, big choices for big people. And that's something that's really eye-opening for parents that feel afraid, like they have to maintain all this control of, I can let my kid have some choices about their life, and that's going to lead them being to a whole healthy adult. Mm, And making it developmentally appropriate. Exactly. So I'm not going to let a three-year-old decide when they go to sleep, not my three-year-old at home and not anyone else's. (laughs) That is not a decision for them. But a three-year-old can decide, do you want carrots or celery for snack? Um, Do you want to wear this outfit or this outfit? They can choose those things. And that helps them to develop that mental um, inner talk of, I can make decisions for myself. I am capable. 
Yeah. And speaking of the developmental process, what is the age range for children in play therapy and when do they kind of age out of that? So I have seen as young as two. Now, usually at two, we're focusing really heavily on filial therapy because Uh they are so young. But the the play therapy models for kids three to 10. Okay. Sometimes we go up to 12. Some kids do still want to play at that age, but it works best kids ages three to 10, typically around eight, nine, 10, we move into what we call activity therapy, which is kind of like play therapy, but just with bigger toys. So uh, instead of the sand chart, instead of the sand box, we have a sand tray with miniatures Um, for imaginative play. We have more dress up that's more appropriate to what a preteen would want to do rather than a five-year-old. Um, whenever you're working with these young children who have been through different traumas, as a counselor, how do you deal with that and make sure that you're not taking that home? Whew. Well, that I knew all that theoretically when I was in school, like, oh, yeah, these are going to be all my tools. And then I knew all that going into it. And then I became a parent and everything changed. I would say that's when it really hit me of the reality of a lot of these kids' lives. So I would say dealing with it, just knowing that I have a piece of the puzzle because I would just kill myself trying to do as much as I could. And I primarily worked with adoption foster care, which just took a lot of time. There are lots of people to talk to, lots of different facets. And I said, okay, I can't keep doing this work if I burn myself out. So how can I protect myself so that I can keep doing this work? Because if I'm not doing it, then these kids are going to be one provider short. So really just identifying like, what is my piece of this puzzle? And my piece is to give this kid a safe space and to educate their parents. That's it. And really holding those boundaries with parents, with caseworkers, CASA workers of like, this is my piece. This is what I'm going to commit to. Nothing more, nothing less. Absolutely. And setting those boundaries, like you said, that's so Mm -hmm. important to not take work home. And what you do isn't easy. So knowing that, okay, I'm making a big impact here, but I can't save the world on my own. No, nope. And I, and there are many other people out there who, who can't, who can't do that, but who can help out and who are part of this child's life and who care about them. And it's not all on me. Absolutely. And for some parents that might be considering taking their child to therapy, but Mm -hmm. they're not really sure what therapy is like, or if that's the best option, what Mm -hmm. would you say to parents that are in that process? Well, I'm partial and think that anybody can benefit from therapy. I would say if your child has had prolonged issues that are affecting their functioning at school, at home, or with their health, and when I say prolonged, we're talking six weeks or more of continuous issues, it's probably time to seek some professional help. Um, I would also tell parents that it's not not as serious as they think it is. Like they're not failing because their child is going to therapy. This is another tool. So like I said, I have kids. So just like I would get my kid a tutor if they're struggling in math, just like I would get them extra training if they want to play a sport, but they were having some struggles. This is just another tool in the toolbox to help your child succeed and be the best they can be. I really love the way that you worded that because I can imagine a lot of parents do feel shame or mm-hmm. guilt for things that might have happened or mm-hmm. thinking that their child needs help. But like you said, realizing that they may not be mental health experts, just like no. I wouldn't be a math expert and would take a child to tutoring for that and how yeah. it's just a different specialty and getting them the help that they need. Absolutely. Well, and even as a mental health professional, I can't be that for my child. They need someone outside of me to do that. So just like grandparents, aunts and uncles, neighbors, uh, all those people play a role in your child's life. It's not just on the parents. Parents need a whole village to raise kids. Speaking of a village and parenting, it's back to school season soon. Oh, yeah. 
So I can imagine that's a very stressful time for children, mm-hmm. for parents, and a lot more children starting therapy because of the difficulties mm-hmm. with that time of year. So do you have any recommendations or things that you think of when going back to school? You know, I always lean on less is more. So I personally, with my own family, the week that school starts, we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. We're not going anywhere. We're not committing to anything. Maybe even the week before and after, <laughs> if I'm honest, just because we already know it's going to be a hectic time. And preparing your kid ahead of time for those changes. So you know if you have a kid who struggles a little bit with like, where do I go? Where are my classes? Ask the assistant principal, hey, can we walk the school ahead of time? This is a new school and maybe get their schedule ahead of time. Teachers, principals, counselors, all those people are a lot more willing to make exceptions, especially if it's ahead of time, if you let them know. So just knowing your kid where they particularly struggle and seeing how you can equip them beforehand. Yeah, having that communication and Mm -hmm. setting the expectation that I know it's going to be crazy, you guys, but we'll try to relax as much as we can because Mm -hmm. it's a big change, especially for children that don't have that previous experience and it's all new to them. Oh, yeah. It's a big change. Really, that entrance into kindergarten, sixth grade, and ninth grade, those are the really big ones for kids that we, we have to watch out for. Yeah, because thinking of the lifespan and those developmental ages, those are huge ages for change. Absolutely. When you think about kindergartners, you know, they're just learning those social skills and how to be around other people. When you think about middle schoolers, they're just entering that phase of where friends are really important. And then high schoolers are thinking about what's my life after this? So they're stressing out about what do I do when my parents aren't telling me what to do anymore? Yeah, absolutely. And Are there different types, back to filial therapy and play therapy, are there different types of those therapies? You had mentioned different theories or techniques. Um, Are there different types depending on what the the child is going through? It depends on the counselor. So typically your play therapy orientation is going to be determined by the therapist. And it's typically what their theoretical orientation is with adults. So like if you have an Adlerian therapist, they're probably going to use Adlerian play therapy. Same thing with CBT, person-centered. As far as filial therapy, there are kind of two schools of thought. There are um, there's CPRT, child-parent relationship therapy that was developed at UNT um, by Dr. Gary Landreth and Dr. Sue Bratton. And then you have um, just filial therapy. I don't think they have a special name for it developed by the Gurneys, which is a couple, I believe that developed it about the 19, around the 1950s. Uh, Both of them preach kind of the same thing. CPRT is a little bit of a shorter model. It's only 12 weeks, whereas the Gurneys is a little bit longer than that. But both of them are coming from the same place of wanting to equip parents with play therapy skills. Yeah. And I'm sure for a big goal of that is to have that open communication with the parents Mm -hmm. and the children. And like you said, developmentally, little kids, little decisions Mm -hmm. and changing that as they grow. Yes. And also adjusting your language. So with kids, again, we're always trying to empower them, let them have uh, autonomy, autonomy and agency over their life. So instead of saying you can't do that, saying that's not for that. So like if I say I don't want a kid to jump off of the chair, I may just say instead of don't jump off that chair, hey, that chair is not for jumping. Mm -hmm. So that way they're still internalizing the limit. But I'm not saying you can't, you can't, you can't all the time. Yeah, I like that reframe of making it into, okay, don't do that there, but that doesn't mean that you can never do it and not being overly negative or controlling with a child. Exactly. And reshaping that language. It makes me think there's probably a lot of examples of talking to children that could be changed. And I'm sure parents have a lot of questions or maybe surprises going through that process. It's so many. In fact, usually when I'm doing filial, I kind of equip them with a few canned responses 
just like when, when I just shared, of, uh-huh. that's not for this. Um, you can choose. If you don't choose, I will choose for you. Uh, just a few responses like that, because it really is learning completely new language with your kid. With teenagers, it's a little bit different of not freaking out when they tell you something that they shouldn't be doing. So just saying, I'm going to think about that. Let yeah. me think on that, or I'm going to pause. I'm still processing. So really just remembering not to get emotional, because when you get up here, your kids get up there, and then that's where the conflict happens. Because mm, once you start yelling and anger gets involved, mm-hmm. nobody's thinking clearly. It turns into who's winning, who's Mm -hmm. losing, and just a huge confrontation. Yes. So I'm sure whenever parents go through this, they probably start communicating differently with each other as well. Oh, yes. I remember when I went through my training for CPRT, uh, Dr. Sue Bratton, who did it, who's amazing, her talking about how this shapes your whole life. It really, really does because you start to see, oh, this kind of communication works everywhere because probably no one wants to be told, don't do this, don't do that. So it really does help you communicate in a more person-centered way with everyone in your life. Absolutely. And I don't have any specialty in play therapy, but I'm currently in graduate school and doing internship and I'm person-centered for my theory. And whenever I went through the group counseling class and pre-prac, they told us all of these ways to reframe sentences Mm -hmm. with our loved ones of to never say, you always do this or you never do this to not speak in absolutes because Mm -hmm. more likely than not, they're not true. Yeah. And even putting it back on yourself of I'm experiencing, that's one thing that parents come to me a lot saying, well, if my kid is doing something that's bothering me, how do I say that without shaming them? You can say, I'm experiencing X or right now I'm feeling this way. So that way you're not saying you're annoying. You're saying I'm feeling really bothered or upset or annoyed right now because we do want kids to understand the reality that their behavior affects others. We don't want them to feel responsible for being emotional thermometers to other people. And also modeling that it's normal for adults to have feelings Yes, and talking about those and naming those so that whenever they have those big emotions, they don't know who to talk to or how to explain how they feel. Exactly. We want to equip them with a feelings vocabulary that can benefit them for their whole life. Yes, because how can people ask for what they need if they don't know how to explain it? And there's Absolutely. that's something that adults struggle with. I mean, mm-hmm. I can struggle with that from time to time. It always mm-hmm. makes me think of Brene Brown's uh, newest book, Atlas of the Heart. Mm. And she says that whenever they did their study, I think it was only maybe five feelings that American adults could name. Mm-hmm. It was like anger, sadness, happiness. It might have been those three, honestly. Yep. And really digging into it of, If we don't know how to describe to others what we're feeling, how can we ask for help? How can we go Mm -hmm. through this human experience? That is so true. I think with just about every client I've had in the last few years, I've used a feelings wheel and it showed those kind of five core feelings that you just talked about and all the feelings that come from it. Mm -hmm. And one that's always been interesting to my clients is numb. Numb is associated with anger. And they're like, how could that be? And so we kind of explore that of like, oh, I, I never thought of those two being related. And they can agree or disagree. That's okay. But just even putting different words instead of just saying, I'm angry. Well, are you irritated? Are you disappointed? Are you in Are you enraged? Those are all very different things, but they can all just kind of be thrown into the bucket of anger. Yeah. And so many times anger is just the tip of the iceberg and there's so much underneath. Definitely a secondary emotion. 
And then for children to learn that and to get to have this experience to go through play therapy at a young age Mm -hmm. or if their parents get them in therapy and talk about emotions, that just helps set them up so much better later in life to be able to talk about their feelings. It it really does warm my heart thinking about three, four, five, six-year-olds who are now going to be able to live their life being able to say, I didn't like that. And not in an aggressive way, not in a, you know, I'm going to put you down way, but just to someone, you know, maybe when someone makes a rude comment, like, I didn't like that. Instead of feeling like they either have to just suck it up or say, hey, you don't talk to me like that and responding aggressively. Because that's so, such a powerful feeling to be able to respond to things you don't like in a healthy way mm-hmm. and just feeling equipped to do that. That is that I love thinking about that. And honestly, the world could use so much more of that. Getting mm-hmm. on the news, seeing the internet of just people freaking out in public or customer service like oh, representatives. Yes. The world as a whole could use so much more of that. Agreed. And speaking of teens, what do you recommend parents do if their teenagers are engaging in risky behaviors? So this can be really complicated. Um, I, I've worked with teenagers before, and I always say working with them is like going around the back door. Because if you approach them like direct and say, don't do this, don't do that, well, that's just, you know, the okay for them to start doing those things. So you want to set limits, but you want to set the right limits. So really even asking yourself, why why does this bother me? Is this because this is a true danger to my child or is this just different than the way I would do it? So I always recommend for parents to have a set of absolutes and then preferences and then wishes. So those absolutes are things that are non-negotiable. So for a lot of parents, that's doing illegal substances, um, making curfew, things like that. Whereas a preference might be what sport they play or if they play sports at all, wishes maybe I want you to put the toilet paper on the roll a certain way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we lump all those together and we just find ourselves fussing at our kids about every little thing. So identifying what are those absolutes and what are the limits that you're really willing to enforce? Because remember, if you're enforcing a limit, you have to actually follow through on that. So asking yourself those things and then Also pairing that with the relationship with your kid, always keeping that at the forefront of everything you do and say with them. Yeah, I kind of hear that as picking your battles because Mm -hmm. if you're getting upset with them about every little thing and they feel like they're never doing anything right – they might just give up and think, okay, I'm going to do what I want anyway, which could be risky behaviors. Absolutely. And the the last call I'd have to parents, and, and this can be a little controversial, is really to enter into those difficult conversations. It can be hard to talk about hot topic issues, but your kids are looking for you to be their first educator on these things. They're engaging you. They're asking those questions. And if they sense, ooh, this is not an okay topic to talk about with mom, dad, grandparent, whomever, then they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to find their answer. Answer. So would you rather than find that answer with you or with somebody else who doesn't know what they're talking about? Right. And creating that safe space at home. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for all of the work that you do. It's not easy working with children. It's not working in mental health in general, but to work with children that have been through trauma and to teach them and their parents how to describe emotions and to have that communication. It's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I've loved every bit of it and I feel thankful that I could do it. Absolutely. And is there a message that you would like to share with parents that are currently getting therapy for their children or as the school year starts? Oh, just don't give up. I mean, honestly, there's a season to everything and kids go in and out of things. They really, really do. And not to minimize issues that they have or anything like that, but it can just get easy in a specific season with your kids to just get stuck on like, oh my gosh, they're just never going to move past this. And really with your help, 
a lot of times they do, or it lessens at least. So just to stick with it and know that it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It is just day after day deciding to keep your cool, use your words. And the biggest gift you can give your kids is to model what emotional health looks like. I love that. And to me, that really says having patience with them when it's hard. Absolutely. Because as a parent, we want our kids to know that there's a safe place for them to go when they're not at their best. Now, you can't do that anywhere else in the world, but here at home, you cannot be at your best and still be loved, still be accepted. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not feeling accepted at home, they're going to feel accepted somewhere else that may not be as healthy and be talking about that with others or maybe not in the best way. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for everything that you shared today. It was great being able to talk to you today. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Connections Chat Podcast. Be sure to follow our podcast on your platform of choice to receive updates on our latest episodes. As our community is growing, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a review. If this episode resonated with you, please share and start the conversation with your network or support system. And together, we continue to break through the stigma surrounding mental illness.